Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. You're listening to The Mod Pod, a companion podcast to modern optometry, the go-to publication for full-scope ODs navigating the evolution of our profession. I'm your host, Cecilia Kenning. Join me every month to hear me speak with authors from each issue. We'll talk about their articles, get more in-depth about particular points of interest, discuss how to apply tips and suggestions in real-life practice, and more. Hi, Cecilia Ketting coming to you from Denver, Colorado for The Mod Pod. And today I have our friend Christopher Krutoff, who is practicing at Northwest Eye in Minnesota. How are you doing today, Chris? I am doing fantastic, Cecilia. Good to see you as always. Good to see you as well. So we're going to talk about your article, Glaucoma and Systemic Health, Making the Connection. Um, You and I previously worked together for a number of years back in Virginia and are both currently members of Intrepid as well, but you've been at your clinic for about five years. Tell me about your role and what you're currently doing. Yeah, so our practice um, is a um, rather large uh, ODMB clinic uh, in the northwest suburbs uh, around Minneapolis, uh, spanning from pediatric care uh, all the way through Uh, geriatric care um, and everything in between. Uh, My practice really is focused um, in a few different areas, uh, but uh, specifically with interest in uh, glaucoma, cornea, and surgical co-management. And that those really have been kind of uh, the areas going back even to my residency out of school um, that have piqued my interest. And I'm, I'm happy and lucky to continue to be able to work with those in uh, uh, pretty large volumes in detail. So that makes you a great person to have written your article because you absolutely are in that in that area. Um, and so kind of getting into it, holistic care regarding the eyes is definitely a, a small soapbox of mine. Um, I really loved this article. I think it was a great thing to bring people's attention to. Uh, you are so right in mentioning that it's easy to overlook the effect of systemic health of our patients on their glaucoma. Um, You mentioned a few things, um, among which was sleep apnea uh, that affects the eyes in in a multitude of ways we know. Um, How is this affecting glaucoma or the risk of glaucoma? Yeah, so there's a few different um, theories as to why obstructive sleep apnea may have an impact on the development or the risk of glaucoma, Um, really both in the realms of mechanical theory and vascular theory of glaucoma damage. Um, patients who have obstructive sleep apnea, we know have pretty considerable cardiovascular risk factors and issues, and really does put a lot of stress on that vascular system. Ultimately, what we end up with are issues with hypoxia and kind of dysregulation of that vascular system. And that creates a lot of issues with things like oxidative stress and local inflammation, things that we know cause damage to tissues elsewhere, uh, but certainly can have a pretty considerable impact both on the optic nerve and the retinal tissues, which in turn can end up leading to or contributing to, at the very least, uh, 
glaucomatous damage there. Beyond that, um, there are some thoughts as to mechanical stressors on the optic nerve. Number one, the majority, not all, but the majority of these patients are going to have higher BMIs. Um, and the theory really is those patients are going to have higher adipose tissue around the eye, leading to an increase in epistleral venous pressure, leading to an increase in intraocular pressure. Interestingly, you know, we know the mainstay treatment or, or the gold standard treatment, if you will, is um, uh, CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure which is beneficial in those cases, but it has been shown to be tied with an increase uh, in diurnal intraocular pressure. Uh, the thought generally is that um, the CPAP introduces kind of an increase in intrathoracic pressure, increase in venous resistance, and as such, increase in intraocular pressure. So while it's beneficial for these patients to be on that treatment, certainly this is definitely something that we should keep in mind, especially if we have these patients who, you know, are at target um, or our target that we're measuring in office, but seem to be progressing, maybe we need to be keeping those nighttime fluctuations in mind there. And in theory, maybe we need to be keeping sleep apnea in mind as a potential problem for those patients, especially say our normal tension patients who may be progressing at lower pressures. And we're not really exactly sure, you know, why when we have them down in those low teens or below, we aren't getting the results that we want. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really good point. Um, I it, it's it's funny because with CPAP we know that they need to be on it because essentially they're not breathing. They're stopping breathing while they're sleeping, and that's why they have to have that. Um, but CPAPs, uh, you know, where we can talk about ocular surface and how much that unfortunately just with a poor fit or even with a good fit um, can start to cause damage there. And to think about other issues that you're you're mentioning here, it's it's one of those um, I think a little bit of a chicken and egg or a little bit of a rock and a hard spot, you know, as far as it, we need it, but it's also potentially causing other problems. So that's yeah. And you know, it's not the the answer as you just laid out is not well, CPAP could cause problems. So let's stop using that that's going to cause bigger problems. So we need to work within the confines of what we have, and just keep those other risk factors uh, kind of in mind. So another one that you mentioned, and I was actually kind of surprised to see, was Raynaud's disease. Um, do you mind touching base on what the working hypothesis is regarding this? Yeah, you know, generally, the, the this goes, again, more so in line with the vascular theory behind glaucoma damage. Um, and this really is something more so tied with our normal tension glaucoma patients. Again, those patients who are progressing uh, at lower pressures or developing glaucoma at lower pressures. And we've kind of known or at least theorized there's something very different about those than our standard primary open angle patients. With Raynaud's, what we end up getting is kind of vasospasm of those blood vessels, and we kind of get a dysregulation again of our vascular system there. We're getting poor blood flow due to certain stressors or other factors to certain areas, and in theory, that is also affecting poor blood flow to our optic nerve. If we're getting less blood flow to the optic nerve, our ocular perfusion pressure is decreasing, and especially when we combine that overnight with increases in intraocular pressure, as we know to happen, that's going to leave those nerves um, a little bit more vulnerable. One thing that's kind of interesting, a, a condition that's really 
seemingly discussed a lot less, but something that we should consider more is kind of a cousin condition called Flammer syndrome, uh, named after Joseph Flammer out of uh, Switzerland. Kind of similar, we have these patients tend to be female, tend to actually be more low BMI patients who have these issues, again, seemingly with vascular dysregulation, oftentimes with cold hands and feet, um, decreased um, sleep cycles or altered sleep cycles there, increased sensitivities and other things of that nature. And again, similar theory here is that we're getting less blood flow to the optic nerve, leaving it more susceptible to some of that damage from poor perfusion. Um, and again, um, things to consider for those patients, uh, especially for our normal tension patients, is what other things systemically may be contributing to that from a vascular standpoint. So the last question I have for you is that you mentioned uh, the potential ties between glaucoma and neurodegenerative diseases. And there's a lot of data that's coming out and that we will have coming out, I think, in the next five, 10 years. I think we're going to get a better understanding. Um, but you know, this makes my neuro self very happy and excited. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Are you, are we there to show correlation or causation? Where are we at in this? And what do you think this looks like for the future? So of course, there's a lot of interest in, you know, trying to find any sort of ties or correlations with glaucoma and other neurodegenerative issues. Again, glaucoma is a kind of neuro degenerative process here, but how well does it tie to other things, more prominent things like uh, Alzheimer's disease, like Parkinson's disease, other things of that nature. And really studies are going to kind of show this as a mixed bag. Um, the ties are going to be a little bit more there. Or there are some kind of interesting correlations that we may see with Alzheimer's disease. Actually, there are some um, similarities in the pathologies when there are samples of tissue that is taken from glaucoma to size in the way of the changes to the beta amyloid proteins and to um, abnormal tau proteins there that suggest that maybe there are some similarities in that disease process. Um, when it comes to other uh, general conditions there, Parkinson's disease, those ties tend to be a lot lower. There is some suggestion that the decreased dopamine levels that we get from Parkinson's disease or are seen in Parkinson's disease may have some impact on intraocular pressure regulation and the ability to withstand some of that. But again, that's not really been tied as well together in uh, studies trying to see correlations between the two conditions. Unfortunately, treatments that may be used for Alzheimer's or dementia, things like memantine, really have not been shown to be effective in helping to prevent glaucoma progression. So as far as do we have kind of a common pathway between treating the two, that's not there quite yet. That being said, some of those background things, especially with Alzheimer's disease, certainly are intriguing. And when we get down further in the, into the genetic levels, especially with the APOE genes, um, certainly is intriguing and hopefully will kind of lead us to some answers or at least some commonalities um, where we may be able to have uh, treatment options uh, that could cover for both. It's pretty exciting. It's just interesting. Right now it's interesting, right? And in the future, I think it's going to get exciting because I think we will start to have a better understanding and we'll be able to potentially have better diagnostics and better treatment options. So, you know, it's a, it's a stay tuned type thing, right? Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, trying to utilize our technologies that may be helpful in diagnosing some of those conditions, 
I think is exciting, especially the utilization of OCT for some of those patients. But we have to figure out how we can diagnose some of those conditions um, while also not saying, well, could this be from other things that we see in the way of other retinal issues or optic nerve issues? Because we can't be telling patients that they have these very serious conditions when it may just be kind of a manifestation of something localized to the eye. So exciting, but certainly some work yet to be done there. Yeah, I agree. And finally, in our last minute, um, I have a fun question. Um, I would like to ask you, what is your soapbox? Um, what is your message or wisdom you'd like to impart on our colleagues? Yeah, so I mean, really, this article in in glaucoma as a whole, as a whole, is is kind of a uh, a sort of passion project of mine. I just find it. Um, intriguing. I kind of find the art form of diagnosing and managing glaucoma exciting uh, in some cases. Sometimes it's very frustrating, but the connections I've been able to make with patients through that, um, you know, just seeing them visit after visit and working through and celebrating the highs of good, you know, of, of getting low intraocular pressure or finding the combination of things that works is, is so great. And you know, glaucoma is moving a lot more towards procedural um, uh, in, in interventional uh, treatments early in the process. And there may be a feeling of, well, it's moving more towards surgery. Is this something I want to be involved with? And for me, I think the, the time is never better. And if anything, our role becomes greater. If our surgeons are doing more procedures, doing more surgeries, somebody still needs to be monitoring these patients after those procedures. And in the long run, the three month, six month visits, are we having progression, making those decisions? Are we doing well enough? Do you need to go back on drops? Do you need another surgery? Who better than us to fill that void? So, you know, just because we have some of those changes doesn't mean that our role is being pushed out. And if anything, again, I think our role in glaucoma is growing. Uh, and I think it's a great place to kind of build a patient base. I've done so at a couple of different practices now on it. Um, and I can't think of a better way to be able to do that. That is, that is a good soapbox. I love it. Um, so thank you so much uh, to Chris Krutoff. Uh, to joining us on the Mod Pod tonight. Um, on, don't forget to read his article if you want to hear more about what we were talking about, glaucoma and systemic health, making the connection in modern optometry this month. And for those who want to know more and hear more from you, where, Chris, can they find you on social media? So you can find me, my social media, maybe not as active as yours there, Cecilia. I'm on Instagram at Chris Krutoff. Um, really, I mean, otherwise email is a very easy way to find me, dr.krutoff at nwiclinic.com. Um, I should have some hopefully other articles for, um, uh, coming up for modern optometry later this year. And, um, I think you can find us at the Intrepid Eye Society meetings. We have two of those coming up this year. So I have several different avenues here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining and take care. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to the Mod Pod. I'm here with Dr. Brittany Wright, 
Dr. Brittany Wright wrote an article for Modern Optometry called The Future of Optometry is Equitable Eye Health and Vision Care. Welcome, Dr. Wright. How are you doing today? Thank you, Dr. Ketting. I am doing well. Glad to be here. Wonderful. I'm glad you're here as well. So you actually are an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the University of Colorado Medical School um, over in our Boulder Clinic. But you were previously at the University of Missouri-St. Louis College of Optometry. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I was there on faculty for about four and a half years. Wonderful. How has the move been and how are you settling in? Yeah, things have gone really well, uh, really smooth uh, transition from St. Louis here to Boulder um, and really just, you know, working with the team, getting acclimated to a new cl clinical setting, which has been very exciting. Yeah, and I've done that recently as well, um, which I know many of us are aware of, so I completely can can understand. Um, how How is it going? Are you excited? Um, what are you excited about in regards to the new clinic? Yes, I um, have enjoyed and enjoyed my time working directly with students, uh, but I'm really excited to get back into more full-time patient care. Um, I just missed a little bit of that connecting uh, with patients. So looking forward to that. Also in a multidisciplinary setting where we have access to some of the uh, top ophthalmology colleagues in the field. So I'm really looking forward to working with them as well. Yeah, it's really nice to have, you know, somebody in your clinic that you can go to to ask questions or for, an, you know, a consultation without having to necessarily phone a friend that's down the street. So it, it, I agree. It's nice. Um, so your article is super thoughtful and imparts some really important pearls. I know you served as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at UMSL. So I think that this topic is something that you've probably given a lot of thought to and have a lot of um, experience with. And you begin by setting the stage regarding linguistics and speaking the same language in regards to terminology. I think is really important because this in itself, just starting to talk about terminology can be really intimidating and uncomfortable um, to kind of talk about when you have to admit that you maybe don't know. Would you mind discussing the differences between health equity, health disparities, and health inequities for our audience? Yes, absolutely. And I um, want to just start by agreeing with you that um, we definitely acknowledge that these conversations can be um, somewhat uncomfortable or more difficult to have than maybe discussing a case where we're managing uh, glaucoma, for example. Um, but they're just as valuable. So I uh, commend the work and, and those that are getting involved with the conversation um, and encourage you know everyone to really join and, and learn as much as they can. Um, so to answer your question directly, uh, health equity is going to be um, kind of the state where everyone um, regardless of their individual differences, but where everyone has a fair and just opportunity to attain their highest health. Um, in healthcare, this may look like for us, identifying different barriers that may be impacting a patient's ability just to access or attain that adequate health for themselves. Now, when we then look at just differences in health inequity and health disparity, which can sometimes be used interchangeably, um, but they do have a little bit of a different meaning. And so with health disparities, these are going to really just be the differences in health outcomes among a group within a population. And so this may be based on uh, demographic, 
whether that's race, ethnicity, gender, um, or things like socioeconomic status. So it's just the difference, the quantitative number for one group compared to another. If you dive deeper into those disparities, this is how we can uncover inequities. And so inequities are gonna be those disparities that are actually tied back to unjust or unfair, or um, oftentimes, or in some cases, racial, racially driven or racially motivated policies or practices that create uh, disparities amongst groups based on their ethnicity, their gender, their race, their socioeconomic status, their um, ability to obtain or attain care um, is impacted because of those unjust or um, unfair policies or practice. So health inequities were, are going to be tied to some of those policies or procedures that were in place before that have now resulted in differences in, in those health outcomes. So hopefully that helps to clarify it a little bit. I, I know it does for me, absolutely. So kind of in that same vein, um, how do these health inequities and disparities differ from social determinants? Yes, and so social determinants, um, we kind of think about as just the non-medical factors or influences that can impact a person's health. And so I like to kind of reference it, or you'll often hear a reference to where a person lives, works, or plays that impacts their health and their health outcomes. So these are aspects, um, and examples can be things like environment or quality care access or how accessible is quality health care, education or ability to obtain age-appropriate education, socioeconomic status. So these are all things that an individual may be born into or based on the geography of the location where they live. These are things that are going to impact their health outcomes outside of them going to the doctor and taking their medication as instructed. These may be things, and a good example, I think, um, for the listeners may be thinking about air quality. It's not something we directly control, uh, but based on where we live, where our home is located or where we go to work, if we're in an area where there's not as great of an air quality, there may be higher risk in that population for things like upper respiratory problems, certain types of lung cancers, asthma, things like that. And that's just based on geography, not necessarily that individual's um, personal decisions about their health. That's a really helpful way to describe that. That Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and I think that also kind of brings to light the, the importance that this conversation isn't just about healthcare. It's about so much more. Um, but kind of bringing it back to that, um, healthcare in specific, and then I care where our world is, where are we seeing some of these disparities and what are you thinking some of those underlying factors are? Yes. So, um, we can often see, uh, disparities within eye care across many avenues of the conditions that we see every day. And so, we can think about some of the um, ocular disease components like cataracts or glaucoma or even diabetic retinopathy that do show um, differences among groups of people where there may be um, higher prevalence or higher complication rates in uh, individuals based on race or ethnicity. 
Um, and that's generally when we often reference some of these conversations, um, race and ethnicity comes up quite a bit because that's probably where one, we see some of the biggest differences, but two, it's one of the things that's researched most often. We are now seeing more to this conversation for individuals with disabilities, members of the LGBTQ plus community, um, gender. So we're seeing more of this conversation, not just solely for some of our physical differences, but for other components that might be influenced by disparities um, as well. And so I think age-related changes come up quite a bit. Um, things like age-related macular degeneration, we see a higher prevalence in older populations, um, as well as uh, individuals of European descent. Um, other aspects that weren't something I had really thought much about um, until preparing with this article and just conversations we had in our cultural humility course at OMSL, um, but even just uncorrected refractive error. There are some disparities that exist among school-aged children and those that have either access to or the ability to um, obtain eye exams to be able to get their uncorrected refractive error um, addressed, which we know uncorrected refractive error in kids may impact their ability to perform well in school. So we're even seeing, you know, things that we uh, come across daily and just, you know, updating a pair of glasses where there is some disparity amongst school-aged children uh, based on, you know, geography as well as things like race and ethnicity where there's um, some separation uh, across groups. I love this. This is, I mean, it's one of those things that's, unfortunately, we know is kind of in the back of our mind and we know that these things happen, but I think the more that we bring it to light um, and just making sure access to care, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter the reason that the access to care isn't equitable. It needs to be, right? Because especially when you bring up children, I think that is one thing that that we talk about. Uh, we know as the eye care professionals that one before one and one before school starts, right? But how many children does that actually occur in? And that is such a critical period of time. In your article, you have a great how-to guide. I really appreciate it. Uh, one of the steps is to learn your local history. Um, what does that mean, and why do you think that that's important? Yes. Um, so. It's a uh, one of those aspects where there's a it's a quote by uh, Maya Angelou and apologies if I butcher this, but it kind of generally says, if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. So it's important or valuable for us to look at what is the local history as it relates to uh, health outcomes in the communities with the patients that we're serving. Because if we know the challenges and sort of what has caused those challenges to this point, we can better plan for how do we get, how do we move forward? How do we get out of this space? And so um, good resources for that include things, you know, as, as straightforward as your local library um, that may have, you know, even newspapers or articles that were written that offer some historical perspective from different opinions um, about the uh, health status of your particular community. Um, also, uh, departments of public health or community health centers also generally offer um, resources as to historical data as it relates to um, health care in that particular community. 
Um, and so it's important because it offers some context as to why there may be you know, medical mistrust perhaps uh, amongst the community that you're trying to support. Um, there may have been an event or something that occurred decades before that is just influencing why there's a little bit of disconnect or mistrust. And so if we don't know that exists, we can't navigate around it. So um, that's kind of the value of looking at what is the local history. The other thing I think is um, easy and, and serves uh, really high value is just talking with patients, patients in your community that have lived in that area for decades or generational um, family in that area, they could probably offer and, and are happier or willing to share um, some of the context as far as the community and the healthcare system and where um, some challenges may have occurred. I think that is that is absolutely wonderful. And I, I wish I'd known this before I moved to Denver two years ago, because <laughs> I maybe would have put this into effect and actually utilized it. So I think that's that's a wonderful thing that you've shared with us. Um, what else might you think that would be helpful just in the last minutes here um, to help toward bridging that gap um, towards better um, equity and to improve these disparities and that inequity gap within eye care? Yes, um, I think a, a couple things uh, very quickly. Certainly identifying if there is either within the public health department or the American Public Health Association, there are uh, quite a bit of organizations and departments that are including eye care and eye care services and working to increase that representation to communities that have historically been underserved for eye care needs. And so if that is um, an area, if that is occurring in your area, there may be some benefit to connecting your practice with some of those efforts, offering your services um, or supporting with your services as a resource. Um, something else that I think about that may be beneficial is how we're connecting with patients. And so while sometimes it's uncomfortable to ask a patient, you know, is this eye drop going to be too expensive for you to, to afford? Maybe they're not as comfortable talking about their financial situation, and we don't want to make assumptions either. Um, but perhaps it's QR codes in your office that allow a, a patient to discreetly complete a, a questionnaire that allows them to share, yes, you know, I struggle with this or I have trouble with uh, locating where I can get fresh fruits and vegetables to help maintain my diabetes. So um, finding discreet ways to connect with patients in your office um, are other things you can kind of think about to connect with patients. That is perfect. And those are things we don't think about, but we do at the same time. We know we ask them, you know, I don't want you to, I, I routinely tell my patients, I don't want you to decide between this medication and paying your rent or getting bread. Um, that yes, should never absolutely. be the way that things are. Yeah. So finally, I'd love to ask your question. Um, what is your message or wisdom that you'd like to impart on our colleagues um, other than what we've already talked about? You've given us so much. Yes, um, I would just say um, kind of very simply to uh, encourage everyone to be open to conversation, open to uh, more listening and having an open mind as we engage and try to work together um, really with the same goal and it's to support our patients, to support our community, to, to support our profession. Perfect. Thank you so much. Brittany, for being with me on the Mod Pod. For those of you, uh, those who want to know more about you and hear more from you, where can they find you on your social media? 
Yes. Uh, so I am on LinkedIn, uh, just Brittany Townsell Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, um, and then on Instagram as Insight with Dr. Wright. Great. Well, thank you again so much for joining me, Brittany, and thank you all for listening to both of us on the Mod Pod, and see you next episode. Thank you.